This podcast was sponsored by the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition. My name is Clay Maitland. I'm chairman of the MMPC, which was formed in order to support the U.S. flag Merchant Marine. We hope you enjoy the uh, podcast and welcome your comments and suggestions. The container ship Isla Bella is christened, then launched from a slipway in San Diego. These are sounds from footage of the event recorded by Shipyard General Dynamics NASCO. I was there that night in April of last year, and I could feel how important this moment was, not just for the ship's owner tote, but for the U.S. maritime industry as a whole. And it wasn't just because of the spectacle of watching this massive vessel towering over us, then sliding gently into the waters behind it. And it wasn't the fireworks or the band or the presence of major industry figures and politicians at the shipyard. It was that this ship represented a historic achievement, the first container ship in the world powered by liquefied natural gas, or LNG. Just six months later, El Faro, the ship that this vessel was to replace on the trade between Florida and Puerto Rico, sank. But back in April, at this moment at NASCO, Tote and its parent company, Seattle Saltchuk, were celebrating their moment in the sun, their place at the forefront of technical innovation. After all, another difficult time in this company's recent history was practically a thing of the past, fading from the headlines. But not for the former president of Sea Star Line, the subsidiary in charge of Tote's Puerto Rico fleet. On this day, he was waiting for a key court decision that could decide whether or not he would be going to prison. This is The Sunken Lighthouse, an audio podcast series by Tradewinds and sponsored by the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition, exploring the sinking of the cargo ship El Faro last October. I'm Eric Martin, one of the U.S. reporters for Tradewinds, a newspaper covering the international shipping industry. Over the course of several episodes, we'll be exploring this tragic sinking, which took 33 lives, in meticulous detail, seeking what answers we can and telling the story of this 40-year-old ship as investigators try to determine a cause. And in this second episode, we'll take a moment to look back at something else that was 40 years old when this vessel went down, the company that owns it, Tote Maritime and its parent, Saltchuk. But first, an update on the investigation. Last week, the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, found the voyage data recorder from El Faro 15,000 feet below the surface of the ocean. This was big news. After all, this is basically the ship's black box. If it's intact, it could have recordings of bridge communications and key data that could help explain what happened in El Faro's final moments. But then, a day later, the NTSB said it did not have the equipment it needed to recover the device. It's going to take months before the mission to actually pull it up to the surface is carried out. Meanwhile, the U.S. Coast Guard, the other agency investigating this tragedy, is planning to hold its second round of hearings. Now, let's go back to 1975. The company we know now as Saltchuk, the parent of Tote Maritime, began as a subsidiary of Sun Shipbuilding and Dry Dock, 
a shipyard in Philadelphia that itself was an arm of Sun Oil. Sunship had been best known for building tankers, but in the 1960s the company decided to build a fleet of roll-on, roll-off vessels, or row-rows, on speculation. One of them was El Faro. They were named the Ponce class of ships, after the first vessel in the series, the Ponce de Leon. According to the magazine Surveyor, Sunship got the idea that the ship operator Sealand would have a use for the vessels in its routes between Washington State and Alaska. But when approached, Sealand declined. So Sunship went from seller to rival. It formed a company called Totem Ocean Trailer Express, that's the T-O-T-E in what we now call Tote, to start up an Alaska service of its own with its just-built ship, the Great Land. After a few years, Sun Oil lost interest in running a shipping company and decided to divest Totem Ocean. In October 1982, Totem Ocean's chief executive, Robert McMillan, and a group of Northwest businessmen including Michael Garvey and Stanley Bearer created Totem Resources and purchased the shipowning company from Sunships in a $47 million deal. Totem, which would later become Saltchuk, did well on the Alaska run as oil propelled the state's economy. Ships were packed to the gill in 83, and the next year, Totem paid off its debt to Sun. Then the expansion began. Totem Resources bought tug company Foss Maritime. Then in 1989, it purchased Interocean Management Corporation, or IOM, which already provided crew for tote ships and managed a number of other shipowners' vessels, and more, controlled by the U.S. Maritime Administration. Then this happened. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. These attacks continue as I speak. Ground forces are not engaged. This conflict started August 2nd. Operation Desert Storm and predecessor Operation Desert Shield led the U.S. government to call up 79 of its 96 ready reserve ships. 80% of the sea lift for the effort to push back Iraq's invasion of Kuwait was carried on U.S. flagged ships, and IOM became a key ship operator in the effort. Totem Ocean's business in Alaska grew further, and it brought in another vessel in 1993. Originally named the Puerto Rico, the Northern Lights was one of the sister ships of the existing vessels on the Alaska trade. But it had some changes before moving from Puerto Rico to Alaska. It was lengthened, and a deck was added in a $50 million project. Now a quick flash forward. The ship would later be renamed El Faro, and the changes it went through over the years are getting a close look by investigators. In 1998, Totem entered a new trade which, like the Washington to Alaska run, enjoyed the protection of a U.S. law known as the Jones Act, which requires U.S.-built ships, crewed and owned by Americans, to carry cargo between two U.S. ports. It purchased a company called Sea Barge and renamed it Sea Star Line, replacing its barges with ships to run the type of high-speed liner service it had in Alaska. Totem Resources got a name change, too, becoming Saltchuck. In Puerto Rico, Business had been challenging, and the many operators on the Jones Act protected trade lane engaged what some have called a price war. But in 2002, Salchuk purchased the assets of Puerto Rico competitor Navieras, which was in bankruptcy, taking one competitor out of the mix. And it made another investment on the West Coast, paying $350 million to build two new building row rows for its Alaska service. The vessels, called the Orca-class ships, were built at General Dynamics NASCO. Then, the Northern Lights found a new job in 2003, when the U.S. military again had shipping needs, this time for its war on terrorism and the invasion of Iraq. 
This is current Salchuk Chairman Mark Tabbitt speaking in the General Dynamics NASCO video of last year's Isla Bella christening. They asked for Tote to send and divert a ship to San Diego to load up with ammunition and head to the Persian Gulf. That ship uh, that was dedicated to the Alaska run, the Northern Lights, came down to a dock not very far from where we are sitting today. It was loaded with ammunition. The crew of 23 Americans who were on that vessel were all given the opportunity to get off. Instead, they all chose to sail, all 23 of them, into the war zone. We were one of the first ships to supply for the preparation of the invasion of Iraq. The Northern Lights spent two years on charter to the military, and then it got a major upgrade and a new name more befitting its new employment. The ship was taken to the Atlantic Marine Shipyard in Alabama and converted to carry more containers in addition to the trailers and other rolling cargoes it was originally built for. Tanks were added to carry fructose and rum, and it was named El Faro, the Spanish word for the lighthouse, and sent to Sea Star Line's Puerto Rico fleet. My colleague Bob Rust reported at the time that the company believed the project extended the 30-year-old ship's lifespan by 10 years. Then when it turned 40, the thinking went at the time, they would consider another life extension. A reminder, the ship sank when it was 40 years old, and towed executives have said in investigative hearings that the vessel could have continued trading beyond that age. Then, something happens that doesn't make it into Totes or Saltchuk's official histories. And it doesn't just impact Saltchuk. It involves three of the four companies left in the Puerto Rico trade. In April 2008, FBI agents raided the offices of Sea Star Line as well as key competitors Horizon Lines and Crowley Maritime. A few months later, four executives at Sea Star and Horizon plead guilty. They become star witnesses in a major case over price fixing, revealing that the companies had been working together to allocate customers and keep freight rates higher starting in 2003. Eventually, all three companies agree to pay more than $76 million in fines, and Seastar Line puts a little more than $14 million into that pot. Frank Peek, who was Seastar Line's president at the time, was eventually convicted in Puerto Rico and sentenced to a five-year prison sentence at Fort Dix in New Jersey. It was the longest ever prison term for price fixing, but he insisted on his innocence and is still challenging the conviction. His lawyers are asking the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn the conviction on the grounds that he was denied his right to an impartial jury. Prosecutors, Peek's lawyers say, told the jurors in Puerto Rico about the myriad ways that higher shipping prices could hit residents of the island where it hurts in their pockets. They went so far as to call a witness who said higher freight rates could hurt the amount of money in the school lunch program on the U.S.-controlled island, where there already is a debate about how the Jones Act law that requires more expensive U.S.-built ships impacts consumer prices. But while Peak continued to fight, public attention shifted from this dark chapter to Tote's new project. In 2009, a new generation took over at Salchuk. The daughters of co-founder Mike Garvey became 73% owners of the company. The next year, Salchuk was faced with a decision looming for all shipowners whose vessels spend much of their time in the waters of the U.S. and Canada. The North American Emissions Control Area was set up surrounding the coasts of both countries, and by 2016, emissions rules would be so tight that the type of high sulfur fuel oil that so many ships rely on would not be allowed. Owners could convert to alternative fuels, install exhaust scrubbers, or buy more expensive low sulfur fuel or diesel. Tote, a subsidiary that now oversees both the Alaska and Puerto Rico fleets, first wanted to convert its Orca-class ships in Alaska to run on liquefied natural gas. 
But what it didn't have in the plans at that time was replacing the older Puerto Rico ships like El Faro. That's because the Puerto Rico market was still challenging, making such an investment uninteresting. This is Tote Chief Executive Anthony Chiarello speaking at a conference that Tradewinds held last year. I can tell you at that time, and that, that's right about when I joined, we had absolutely no expectation of refleeting for Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico was not a positive environment for, for our business at that time. And, um, you know, we had a lot of challenges there, as did our competitors. And we need to figure out, you know, how, how, it, would, how it would look going forward. Fortunately, things started to improve. We were able to, uh, you know, help, for, at least from our, our company's perspective, help to, to get things better in order, which get us, got us into a position of, of looking at potential refleeting. And at that point, he said, the decision to choose LNG as a fuel source was obvious. Chiarello repeatedly explained that the decision to move to natural gas as a fuel was not a financial one, since Tote could not predict where commodity prices would be in the future. That wasn't our decision. It was based purely on the environmental impact. While its new ships were under construction, Saltchuk also expanded into international shipping markets with a takeover of operator Tropical Shipping in 2014. Meanwhile, its Tote arm planned to operate its older ships, including El Faro, while its projects were still ongoing. And in the shipping industry, the company was widely viewed as being a quality operator, though, it must be said, that was certainly before a casualty investigation began probing so deeply into its operations. Clay Maitland, who is a managing partner at International Registries, the U.S. company that runs the shipping flag of the Marshall Islands, had a first-hand experience of Tote's vessel operations. I should also note that he is the head of our sponsor, Merchant Marine Policy Coalition, though that did not influence my decision to interview him, and the MMPC has had no role in the content of this podcast. Two years ago, Maitland won an auction for a ride on the Roro Midnight Sun from Tacoma, Washington to Anchorage, Alaska. He said he was impressed by the crew on board, as well as the ship. Remember that even in summertime, a passage to Alaska is, is kind of rough. It gets bumpy and wet. Uh, but the, the amount of effort that was put in by the deck and engine departments, we checked, we, we spent a lot of time down below, uh, was very impressive. I think Tote is a first-class company. Because uh, after this traumatic experience, they're probably going to be reviving, uh, revising rather, and, and re-examining a lot of procedures. I think everybody is. With the delivery of the Isla Bella, the average age of Tote's fleet was to dramatically decline. But the LNG-powered vessel came too late for the 33 men and women on El Faro. It was delivered on October 16th, a little over two weeks after El Faro went down. Investigators are digging into the granularity of how Tote operated and maintained that ship, and we'll have more on that in later episodes of this podcast. But first... Outside of the Coast Guard, outside of the uh, American Bureau of Shipping, uh, a true Bureau of Marine Inspection is to be independent. Uh, and uh, we don't have that independence now. And, uh, and uh, if you've got to put your finger on something prior to the actual casualty happening, that's where I put my finger. That'll be our next episode in the Sunken Lighthouse. The Sunken Lighthouse was brought to you thanks to the sponsorship of the Merchant Marine Policy Coalition. 
This podcast is a production of Tradewinds, which is part of the NHST Media Group. Visit our website at tradewindsnews.com. This program was produced and reported by me, Eric Martin. A reminder to check out the other podcast by the NHST Media Group by our colleagues at Upstream. It's called The Bit and focuses on the oil and gas industry. The songs Confused State and Arid Foothills come from Kevin McLeod under a Creative Commons license. His work can be found at incompetech.com. Other music comes from Purple Planet at purple-planet.com. And thank you for listening to this show.